1981, the year I was born and the start of the millennial generation. This is a podcast for the next generation of venture capitalists. I'm your host, Elizabeth Krauss, and I'm a founding partner at MergeLane. MergeLane invests in exceptional pre-seed to Series A startups and early stage venture capital funds. And because we've seen the data, we only invest in opportunities led by at least one female leader. I love asking questions, and as an emerging manager, I've had more than enough of them. I started this podcast to find some answers. Enjoy the episode. Hey all, thanks for tuning in. Our guest today, Beezer Clarkson, invests in early stage venture funds in the US, Europe, and Israel as a managing director at Sapphire Partners the division within Sapphire Ventures that invests in venture funds. Beezer, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always awesome. Well, if you're listening to this at some point in the future, it's October 2020, and the coronavirus has been materially impacting our country since about March. And I invited Beezer to join us today to talk about if and how the pandemic is affecting Sapphire Partners' investment strategy. And I'm also going to share a little bit about what I'm seeing from investing in startups and venture capital funds at our firm, MergeLine. So Beezer, to start, I'm curious, what's one seemingly logical assumption that you had eight months or so ago that has proved to be untrue? So something that I got publicly really, really wrong, which we can discuss whether that was a good thing or not, was in March or April, I can't remember, I did an interview. And I basically said, the odds of this being a good fundraising year are incredibly slim to none and next year might be worse. Next year, I could still be right, we don't know, but this year, holy cow, was I wrong. So by our count, there's already been more dollars raised by US venture funds this year now than in all of 2019. And I am completely convinced this year will now cross 50 billion, which is somewhat crazy when you think about the state of the world at large. So I got that totally wrong because in March and April, we were in lockdown. The stock market was in free fall. You know, endowments didn't know what they were doing. Hospitals were focusing on COVID patients as they should, but they were not doing elective surgeries and all those things that feed the dollars that then go into venture funds. But the world seems to have turned a corner on some of those aspects, the stock market being a huge driver, of course, and, and the dollars have poured into these humongous venture funds, and that has driven the number up and did not see that coming. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know that many people saw that coming. <laughs> um. Yeah, yeah. Right. And we've been seeing similar trends with our startups. The thing that I really got wrong is I thought that our startups were going to have a tough time. And there are definitely some companies that have had a really tough time, but the majority of our portfolio, their growth has increased at a far greater rate than it did last year. And they're raising money. And I'm curious, are you seeing any trends related to the pandemic's effect on fund portfolio performance? We've seen what you've seen, which is generally speaking, it's a good thing, but I'm shocked at how well the underlying portfolio has performed. And I always say shock because you look outside your window and it's bad, right? Like my son's not going to see the inside of a school this year, I don't think. Companies are going bankrupt, like in the real world companies, right? Things are really hard. It's still scary. 
And yet our indirect portfolio, because we invest in venture funds and software, and we have a lot of enterprise, a lot of folks leveraging the cloud and the whole move to digitization, it's pulled forward a whole bunch of what could have taken three, five, 10 years into now. And you're seeing that strength in the business. And you also see because there's so much capital when a company starts doing well, Elizabeth, it sounds like what you're seeing in your portfolio, people like pile on. We've had some underlying portfolio companies that have raised like three times in the last nine months. I mean, it's, it's just this weird stark contrast to what our experience in the real world is, right? So, so we see that trend definitely. And, and that doesn't mean to say everything's coming up sunshine. We definitely have areas of exposure and travel and other places, which is obviously just not going to have as good a time right now because people aren't traveling as much. I mean, there's the obvious challenges there. Fingers crossed we'll all come out the other side okay and that too, though. Yeah, I hope you're right. We have one company that's a vacation rental software that has been doing really well because people have been opting for vacation rentals rather than hotels. But we have another company in the business travel space, and and that's been obviously tough, but they've been taking this time to build a stronger technology, and we're hoping that they'll emerge stronger on the other side. So you mentioned how much capital is being raised by funds. Have any of the funds in your portfolio been raising during this time? And what have you gleaned from their experience? We've seen, I feel like the word unprecedented is so overused this year. I'm sick of it, but we've seen an unprecedented amount of our funds just as a microcosm of the venture market coming back to market. So as a, just a small data point to put it into perspective, at the end of August, we thought maybe we'd have three of our GPs back raising in Q4 because they told us, and you know, two of them were on schedule and we knew one of them was raising two funds at once, but we now have nine funds that we're processing. So, and that's like literally in the end of August. So this is what people that have decided given the state of the world and the strength of their LP base, which is not true for everybody in venture, but given what they particularly have going for them, they're able to pull in their raises. And we've been experiencing a version of this the whole entire year. And there's different version of this in Q1 versus Q2. But yes, everyone's been thinking through the fact that if you have an installed base of LPs that have budgeted for you, know that they can deliver the capital and you wanna make sure you have money if next year looks a bit even more scary, heaven forbid, they're pulling in the raises and it's and it's happening. These funds are, are in the sweet spot of being able to raise. And you touched on this a little bit because you mentioned that part of this is because they're not exactly sure what's going to happen next year. But are you advising your funds or have you seen your funds shift any of their strategies around what they're going to do with raising future funds? Well, the two things that I would say was in March and April, we were in the midst of, usually folks look to close at the end of a quarter. It's sort of like a nice sort of like, oh, we'll close at the end of March or we'll close in the end of June. And we definitely had some funds in the end of March, early April that knew they were going to close in June, but they were so far along in the fundraising that we basically just said, pull it in. Like, don't wait. Heaven forbid the stock market stays down and capital gets crunched. You want to make sure you have it now versus pushing it out further. Um, And that remains somewhat true for the whole entire year that we had GPs coming back to us and saying, I know we said would raise in September or the end of the summer, but we think we can do it and close in June or July. And and let me just caveat this. These are people you've been invested with for a while. So it's not someone you're meeting for the first time. It's folks that A, we've had a relationship with, and they've also have a 
you know, in the in a spectrum of funds, like they have DPI as well as TVPI. They have they've told people to advance or coming back to market this year. So in theory, most of the LPs have budgeted. Whether or not LPs have had a shift in their own financials and they can't make it is a different conversation. But it's not like I just met somebody yesterday and they're saying we need to raise tomorrow. This is a very um, as a privileged fundraise for these GPs. But we saw that throughout the board and we've, we've been supportive, um, again, because they're people that we've known and trusted and worked with. But we haven't recommended that folks necessarily do it. In fact, we've always said we're here regardless. So if you're raising in later in the year, that's fine. And in some respects, what's happened with the pulling in of all the capital is that some, you do find yourself in triage. It's like if all your companies come back and want to raise the same day, there's just bandwidth triage you have to go through as well as dollars triage. And we've told some managers, if you wait till next year, it might ironically even be easier because if nobody's raising next year, you might have more mind share than if you try to pull it in now, you know, trying to get mind share when there's nine funds coming through the system is just harder than you know, Q1 if there's nobody. So it's, it's a bit of a both worlds, but we, we ourselves can't dictate a fundraise. Right. Huh. Well, you know, with all this capital being raised, we've been doing a lot of thinking about the future of our firm and the effects that we might see in the market from all of this capital being raised. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts around whether this amount of capital concerns you and whether funds, especially larger funds, are going to have trouble deploying this capital in the future? I never, huh. history tells us, let me say it this way, that funds will figure out a way to deploy the capital. The question is, will it deteriorate returns? Now, there's two options also if you end up with more capital than you thought you could deploy. One, you can extend your investment time horizon, right? Right now, we see most funds on a two-year, give or take, investment time period for the initial investments. Historically, it was more like three to four. So we are totally fine as an LP of one. If people said, you know what, we have extra, we're not, we're going to take a little bit longer to invest this. We think that's excellent. We are fully supportive. There's no reason why you have to deploy it in two years. Um, so that's one way to deal with excess capital. Um, another way, and I doubt we'll see this, but you saw it in 2001 that GPs literally gave money back to LPs. I was in a fund that gave money back to the LPs because the world crashed and people didn't think they could deploy it reasonably. Really big name funds gave money back. So that is also always an option. I put zero belief into the fact that that will happen, but it's not impossible. The bigger concern is that people keep piling in and piling in and then the returns just get diluted down. And then that's just a negative for the whole industry, right? It's not helpful if there's the general returns in the venture profile go down because that makes it worse for everybody. That's my, that's my bigger concern, right? If there's rush to everybody raising big funds and you kind of get these massive mutual fund type multi-stack GPs and then what needs to be true on the exit for those to be three, five X returners and are there a sufficient number of companies that will exit at that level? Like that would be awesome if it is. But if it's not, then we're just going to see a whole bunch of low performance. And that, again, this doesn't serve anybody. Right. Yeah, I mean, transparently, we're really torn about whether we're going to raise another fund. Because I just, I don't know. I, I feel nervous about all this capital flooding in. And um, the expression of you don't, well, what I don't 
but I, what, what I never worry about is, is there gonna be interesting companies to invest in, right? I think the human capacity for innovation is endless, which is part of why I just love venture capital because it is the best way I know of accessing that, right? Because for right. me, as, as, as my, personal, my personal way of doing it. Um, so I don't think that's changing or are you seeing a difference in the kind of innovation that's happening now? I'm not seeing a difference in the kind of innovation. I think that there's companies that are being funded that have an extremely low likelihood of success. I think that some relatively low quality companies are able to raise capital now. And I'm I'm nervous that that might be a challenge for our industry because people are gonna see that failure rate and get scared. Um, but I think there are still great companies out there and opportunities to get in. You know, for us, it, it's also a question of, do we want to serve a need that's really needing to be served? Or do we want to fight with thousands of others just like us to fill a need that doesn't really need to be served? So doing some deep soul searching on that. And also just thinking about, some other alternatives, like maybe raising a smaller fund that doesn't need to deploy so much capital and get a certain ownership percentage to get into a deal that we're excited about. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see an option. We've seen yeah. um, it. Does, it's not where we tend to play, but I would say I've definitely observed folks build really interesting businesses on these small fund that gets raised frequently, which then ends up adding up to a much larger fund. Right, if you have an LP base that can go with that, um, certainly it's certainly a strategic option that's out there. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, we're at the beginning of our investment period for our current fund, so we have some time. But just paying attention, and interesting that you're seeing similar trends. How do I say it? Are you in the business of working for the carry? Or are you in the business of working for the AUM, which is a polite way of saying management fee, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, 2020 has had all sorts of surprises for us, and it sparked some really overdue conversations about racial equality in our country. Are you seeing trends among funds led by people of color or with some sort of diversity focus? You know, I'm the person who likes to collect data and um, I couldn't find enough data on this to give you a great answer. I mean, there's the data that Allraise puts out and PitchBook has some, though I would say anecdotally, it feels like there has been more smaller funds being raised with a diverse manager set, but I can't tell you how that really compares. It's just, you, you hear about it, you read about it. It does seem to be part of the dialogue, which is great. Um, the numbers seem to be inching forward when you look in the venture capital world and sort of who gets hired into funds. I think Allraise has put some reports out that we're making progress, but could be faster, should be faster. Let me just say that. Um, and we've all seen the report, I think, that PitchBook put out that when it comes to diversity in the founders, that we're not doing well at all. And we're at a three-year low because the pandemic really sucked a whole bunch of diversity out of the system or sucked the ability to meet new people out of the system. And then everyone reverted back to their existing networks, which clearly were not diverse enough. Otherwise, there'd be more diversity in the investing in your own network, right? So that's all a huge bummer. But I really take some comfort in the national dialogue that's happening. And then that will help. Re reorient and revisit. And if folks didn't see it, um, there was a Wall Street Journal article that came out, 
I want to say last week, um, that Yale is now looking at measuring the diversity of their managers as part of their investment set, which, you know, it's funny, this is a question I feel like managers and venture that I've been, that I've known have been trying to put towards the major universities for years now. And it, maybe it just takes a while, but it's good to hear that it's starting, right? All progress is good progress. Yeah, all, all progress is good progress. And I'll say, so we made a conscious commitment to invest in a fund that, because uh, we invest in both startups and venture capital funds, invest in a fund that had at least one uh, partner of color. Mm-hmm. And so we did a lot of research in that and, and talked to a lot of funds. And I would say anecdotally that every fund that I talked to said that the interest level from LPs had increased since March, which is phenomenal. I was so glad to hear that. Um, and I, I believe it has also sparked the idea and, and more um, people of color that maybe this is an industry that they should pursue. So I am hopeful. And we still, as you said, have a lot of work to do. Yeah, speaking in like two weeks, the Black uh, Venture Institute. So there's definitely activities that are happening, which is good. And I tried to get data from rolling funds, which Angels just doesn't have available yet, because my hope is that rolling funds will also be an avenue for individuals who haven't invested yet to come into the market, because it's it feels like it's a better avenue if you're trying to raise small dollars and kind of get your feet wet. I don't, having not personally done it, I, I can't say if it's better or worse, but it it's a new innovation and everything that helps to create new pathways on, I'm always supportive of, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see what people decide to do, but I'm hopeful that will create some new opportunities too. Yeah, agreed. So how is the Black Lives Matter movement and other recent diversity related conversations changed your thinking? Well, uh, how do I say this? I mean, I'm glad it's at a national dialogue level. I don't think we've always believed that diverse teams make for better investments. I mean, the, the, the information has been available for decades. So that, that was not anything that was new news to us. Um, and we have, when I look through at our underlying managers, we have a higher number of diverse check writers in the industry as a whole, but the industry as a whole is such a low bar that that's not saying a huge amount. Um, we do focus at series A. And so that's, the challenge that we have is there's not as many Series A funds that A, that gets started. So it's a limited pool set to find somebody net new. And then you're somewhat reliant on your GPs also making sure that they themselves are diverse. And we do a lot to be helpful. We have um, some folks on our talent team that will help folks find board members. And we're always happy to recommend folks for partners and, and junior investment team members. So I wish that we had more diversity, but I'm glad that we have, that we're ahead of the market at least. Um, and again, like I think a lot of the, where I see the diverse managers really starting their own firms and coming up is at the smaller funds where we just don't participate as much in. We don't really have checks that work at that size and that's challenging and something we're trying to think through, but that's one of the structural issues in the market as a whole for LPs, right? That if funds that are starting are 10 or 15 million and our checks are that size itself, what do you do and how do you address that? Right. Hmm. I know. But we're thinking about it (laughs) because you do want to start working with folks early. We don't, um, as a course of business, invest in managers that don't have institutional 
investing experience. So that's our conundrum, right? Which is why when I say I'm excited about rolling funds, I think this is a really potentially, right? I think there's downsides, obviously, everything's not perfect, um, but getting more people into the business of managing other capital, because that's, we just didn't structure our business to be that person in the market. So restructuring your business is not easy, uh, but there are certainly some LPs of who is that business. There's a lot of family offices. There is better on-ramps when we, there's some conferences that focus on this. I don't know how many of your listening um, audience participates in the Ray's conference, but their numbers are really up this year. It was a really diverse set. Uh, they had a lot of family offices tuning in. So I'm hopeful all that will also help come together because I agree with you. I do think I hear more and more LPs asking questions, folks that you know, I don't want to name names, but people that years ago were not asking these questions. And um, I think also what's happening is that it's on campuses, right? It's, it's again, part of the national discussion. And then when you make investments, you can't, it just comes forward and is part of your thinking, which is great. Yeah. And I hope that we just continue to remind each other that it should be part of our thinking. Yes. One of the things that I was found out about that we but I remember talking um, when I was thinking in March and April about what was going to happen in venture. One of the things I was concerned about was the diversity that would get challenged because when everyone, one of the clear things, we all did it, right? Everybody in March and April sat down and spent their time with their portfolio because that's what investors do, right? When, when an emergency happens, you go to your portfolio, you see what state they're in. LPs did it, GPs did it. And then as new investments came up, a lot of it was putting money into your portfolio because it needed it, right? Like, again, this is super logical and exactly what people should be doing, but it wouldn't bring more diversity in, right? And a right. lot of funds weren't necessarily hiring over the summer. We tried to hire for, for my team and it was extraordinarily hard, right? It took ages because it's a pandemic and you're quarantined. And then as investors start investing, the language that we heard a lot of the time was, well, these are people we knew before we were quarantined. How do you build trust over Zoom? Um, seed investors were ahead of the curve, right? Because a lot, some of the pre-seed seed investors we knew were already making, like forget about the pandemic, they were always in the business of meeting folks remotely. And so that continued on. But for a lot of folks, you saw this retrenching and it just, you know, you felt like inevitably that that would take some of the diversity out because the diversity was all about reaching in and starting out a new network, so. Anyway, I now I now saying to people, we we've done the first nine months of this. We know what it looks like. Let's do the next nine months better, right? <laughs> we've had our first quarantine pass. Let's let's be smarter for the second half. I like that. I like that. Try to find a way to be positive, right? <laughs> yeah. So, what's the most important realization that you've had as a result of the pandemic? You know. Everybody in Ventureland keeps talking about how this bull, this bull run we've been on for forever has to be over soon. And I agree if there is another significant stock market correction that exists for an extended period of time, because clearly March and April wasn't long enough to really do it. And I'm not wishing that it happens, but short of that, I think this bull run is going to continue for another few years. I, I don't know how long to call it, but I think we're in the land of abundant capital Again, short of the Fed not supporting the stock market and that whole wind getting sucked out. Um, otherwise we're here and it's, it's gonna be abundant and it's gonna be technology as the driver and we all have to figure out what, how to play. It's everyone, you know, there's so much language where everyone keeps saying, oh, but the valuations will come down and things will write themselves. And I'm like, I don't know. We went through a pretty tough end of Q1, early Q2 and look where we are today. So that's my messy realization that 
hasn't it's taken we've taken a quite a beating in 2020 are still going so yeah and you know my prediction one of my predictions at the beginning of this is that we were going to continue to see a bull market and the startup community and venture uh, for two or so years and then it was going to drop off a cliff because my prediction was that funds were going to have a much harder time raising but we're not seeing that so if these funds are being raised this year and they have a five-year investment period then we're going to see ample capital for five more years oh there's no shortage of capital in the venture ecosystem yeah. I, and absolutely not the, the dry there to your exact point there's a ton of money being raised this year there was 45 billion raised last year. Not all of that's deployed. I mean, and that's just in the US. Um, so there is a lot of dry powder out there. I think mm -hmm. you'll find people will get, if next year is a really strong recession and the market goes down, people will be worried and a conservatism will come back and the valuations will come down and people will choose to deploy. But there's, there's no, there's capital in the system. Again, short of it being given back to the LPs, which I put zero belief in that that will happen again. Um, it's there. So given all this, are you making any changes to the size of funds or the types of funds that you're most interested in? No, we built our program to, well, let me back up. We have a core belief that as a LP into venture funds, and, and if we were LP and other, and other kinds of funds would be true too, but one of the best things you can do is just be consistently boring. Like boring is beautiful. You show up and you just do the same thing every day. And that is what we do to be there for our GPs and we built our business with that in mind. So we deploy the same amount. We commit between called 100 and 125 million every year into funds is what it is. Good years, bad years, that's what we do. So no, and we built the business to be look at early again, predominantly series A and we'll just keep doing that. We, um, to the extent that it's helpful, I can also share that we think about it more about the return profile so we underwrite, if we're trying to get series A exposure, we try to underwrite those funds to hit a three X net because we think that's possible with a series A focus. And when the times when we dip down into seed, we think about it as can this fund deliver a five X net? So I don't see those parameters changing. What could change is what, how a portfolio construction and the shape and the form of a series A fund or a seed fund. So now we have seed funds that are 150 to 200 million. A few years ago, I didn't think that was possible. But they have many, many characteristics of a Series A fund as far as their portfolio concentration and their ownership. And do you know what I mean? So these, some of these things might flex around the edges, but what we do doesn't really. And it's because we use the lens of returns to drive it. And we have the boundaries of, we have an evergreen model and to make that work, you gotta be consistent. So we can't be like, oh, next year is not so nice. We'll just, we'll go do credit or you know, we'll go invest in lumber. Like that's not our playbook. We don't have that. <laughs> And, you know, our listeners are sort of made up of three different kinds of fund managers. It's VCs who have never raised a fund before or raising their first fund, VCs who have made some investments but don't yet have cash on cash returns, and then funds that have a proven track record. And so I'd love to hear, based on what you're seeing in the market, if you have advice for those three groups. So maybe to start... Do you have advice for VCs who are raising their first fund? Sure. I think probably most advice is generally applicable, but I think for your first time fund, you now have, you have options, right? You can do a rolling fund. You can do 
a more institutional raise. Um, what I generally tell people with their first fund is, I know there's some hype around a one and done close. Like, I, I just think that forget about it. I think that forget about it, even if you're an established fund. I think that it's a, it's a lovely thing to do, but don't worry about it. If you're a first time fund, like get going and figure out how to get going. And minimal viable fund size is a beautiful thing and go get it and get out there because what you're trying to do is to build your body of work and that how you can start getting to do that as soon as possible is great. Right. So I, I hear some GPs saying, oh, but I want to wait and be one and done. And I just I've been telling folks since March, like, don't don't hang your head on that. Um, and when it comes to meeting LPs, my advice is generally similar regardless. I think the more established you get, the more the question becomes, uh, do you want to rethink your cap table of LPs and get different kinds? But that's a very privileged uh, discussion. Usually we're all just excited if we can raise money. And I always guide people that they should look to get warm intros to other LPs because, for example, when someone sends me, like I said, Elizabeth, you send me a deck and you say, someone who I know and I trust and I think is a great investor is raising, do you bees or want to meet them? Here's their executive summary. It's wonderful. I love that. What I don't like is when someone just pings me directly and puts you on the spot. So I'd say, do the warm intro, then I can review it and say if it's a fit for us now maybe not now, but later, or maybe not ever because it's you know something we just don't invest in. And then you can go back to your friend and you've got all this information now that they didn't have before about what we're doing and it's great, right? Um, so I always recommend that people do that kind of warm intro. And then I also recommend that if you know, let's say you have your same friend, Elizabeth, that wants to raise a fund similar to yours and you've had so much interest in your fund that you, you have all these extra LPs that you don't know what to do with, um, those are great people to then share on because you know these LPs have already indicated an interest in a similar type of fund, a similar stage, and you can make warm referrals that way. And just to keep asking because I, it's amazing to me. I mean, I listened to a podcast, I think it was Elizabeth Yin's Hustle podcast with Samir Kaji, who does a First Republic podcast. She said she talked to 700 LPs for their first fund. I mean, that's amazing, right? And Eva Ho, who did, I want to say it was an Origins podcast, because I want to give credit to the folks um, who, who did this, but she's at Fika Ventures. I think she said she talked to over 300 LPs. So the first funds are, you know, they, they can be laborious. And those, those are some great GPs who detailed how it worked. Um, the other thing I'd say is you now have VCs acting as LPs, and they seem to be it's anecdotal, so I don't have a great data set, but I would say it seems to be the folks who are VCs are investing in first time smaller funds. And um, so the checks are not huge. They're not gonna necessarily drive your whole fund size and your raise, but that's now a new form of getting dollars that I don't know was as prevalent, call it even five years ago. Yeah, we we had some luck with that. And I, I underscore that because it adds a lot of credibility when you get other VCs to say yes to you. I think it's a great place to start. And was that VCs out of their fund or is that GPs at VCs investing personally? GPs investing both. personally. Yeah. Yeah. We, we definitely see both in the LP cap table now in funds. And were they yeah. able to make intros too? Like, could they intro you back to other LPs? They're both personal and then institutional. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, we have one, um, one of the uh, one VC who made a personal investment and and she made a relatively small investment and it was below our investment minimum and we 
went back and forth as to whether we were going to take it. And it was the best thing we ever did taking that check because she's added tremendous value, made tons of introductions and also just been a great resource whenever a question comes up. And so I also encourage that too. If there's some people that you just really want to have in your corner, allowing them to write a check that feels good to them, even if it's below your minimum might be in your interest. Yes, I underscore that as well. I think that's very helpful. And I know some I know some big names that write small checks, but to your point, the big name, even if they aren't as helpful as your as your person, can help you with future fundraising just because it's it adds credibility and then um, I don't know. I presume these GPs are also doing it for deal flow, right? Yeah. And, you know, we, so our fund makes investments in other funds and we did it for deal flow, for just learning, for um, having a different perspective as with an insider view of that. And if, and when we raise another fund, the fund strategy will definitely stick. we it's worked really well for us. That's great. I know um, Iden from Felicis Ventures was talking about that, that they make fund investments out of their, I think it's gross majority, right? Direct investment vehicle, but they do some fund investing to help exactly this, bring in some networks and some viewpoints and expertise that's just not part of what they have in their own team. And I think it's really fascinating. So how about for VCs who have been investing, they probably have some markups in their portfolio that look great on paper, but they don't yet have cash returns. Do you have any specific advice for them? Well, I think right now time is a great, it's a great benefit, right? So spending the time with your portfolio, seeing it develop to the conversation we were having earlier. I mean, I have no idea when, when the, the COVID impact will stop playing its way out into portfolios, but certainly to the extent that you can keep your companies going and if they can do well during this, like that becomes a pretty big interim metric, right? And I have seen some funds who two years ago, maybe, maybe even 18 months ago, didn't have the LP interest that they have today, but they've had a couple companies that, it sounds so awkward to say COVID's been a benefit to them, but they have benefited and that they're, They've really just, you know, the world has aligned around whatever it is that they're doing. And now they have a whole bunch of LP interests because the LPs notice that they've somehow made the right call for whatever reason, right? Sometimes we just get lucky, sometimes we're good. So I would say, don't forget about how important it is that those metrics, those, this time to work with your companies and to help to keep, get them out there, be it fundraising or just business momentum can really be an important use of it. And it's not always just about talking to the next LP. Mm-hmm. And then what about for the more established funds? Well, usually I find the conversation with that is a question of looking at their LP base. Who do they want to add into it? If you're talking about like from a purely fundraising perspective, because I don't think, I think the time thing is just as important, right? On the other, let's say someone's raising, just raised and they're going to raise again in two years. I mean, we're all going to have to figure out what it means for portfolios then and how much of the pulling forward of the digital world happened, but that was like the full TAM impact for companies versus people that really got on this on-ramp and are gonna keep running. Time will only tell, like, what do I know? So some established investing will have the same challenges or benefits. Um, But usually when it comes to adding LPs, we get into a conversation of different version of the same, but if they have the ability to 
be in choice, right? If they're that fortunate, what kind of LPs do you want to bring to the table? Do you want to have a different, you know, the, what's the what's the incremental difference of a new LP and what they, is it a different source of capital? Is it a different orientation? Are they mission-based? What does all that mean? And how do they want to integrate it? Um, and it's a very, I think it's very curated and bespoke in that most GPs I talk to have their own viewpoint and it's not a, there's some rubrics out there, but I don't think it's a one size fits all strategy. Like you should have a third fund of funds, a third endowment, a third, whatever. I, I don't actually think that's how I see it playing out in real life. Got it. Thanks. And uh, to close out, if I invite you to be as self-promoting as possible, what's one thing you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, I find this question the hardest overall. I think that's maybe that says something about me and my, my lack of desire <laughs> to be self-promoting. <laughs> um, so, so one of the things we used to not talk about, and now I'm talking about, is that we came together with a number of other awesome LPs to launch OpenLP. I want to say like six, seven years ago now. And we were, we at Sapphire were very purposeful in not making, in, in staying in the shadows on this because we want it to be a collective community effort. And we still feel very strongly about that. that this is about open LP for folks that don't know it is really just sort of a concept of there should be more clarity and transparency in the ecosystem from entrepreneur to VC to LP and really trying to encourage LPs to engage and to you know, be on podcasts and be on panels and to share their thinking and to write. And I think we just hit the timing right on it because I've seen over the course of the last six years, a real stepping forward of LPs to engage and a lot of interest, which is awesome. And GPs keep sharing and entrepreneurs keep sharing. So we redid the website for open LPs. So hopefully it's better. It's easier to search. We we suck in all the content we can find and we publish it there. We try to we have a newsletter if you want to sign up. Um, we've been doing all that because we just feel that there's so much information out there and trying to aggregate it would be helpful. And we continue to try to encourage um, LPs to, to write and to talk. And I know everyone's not a blogger, so I don't pretend that that's happening, but we have seen more and more discussion happen and we think that's great. And it doesn't all have to happen on OpenLP, but we're super excited when it does. And you can now submit articles and things on it. Um, so we've, we've spent the time doing that. And by we, I mean the other folks at Sapphire, I am not able to rewrite web code by myself. So no delusions of grandeur there. <laughs> but I do tweet about it. That's my job. I'm the tweeter person or the Twitter person. Well, thank you. I mean, just in the last three years, I think that we've made great strides in LP transparency. We still have a long way to go, but it, it has made a difference. Thank you. Well, thank you for your podcast, right? I mean, these are all things that make it better. And you do LP work and you talk about it and that brings all the transparency there. Like there's no way we can do, this is not a Sapphire thing alone. It's just a, how do we work together and help pull it forward for everybody? Well, we'll keep working on it. Well, Beezer, thank you so much. It's time for us to open it up to Q&A from our VC Forum members. And for listeners, if you're not aware, I host a monthly forum for VCs. It's by invitation only. But if you're somebody we absolutely must have in our group, drop me a line and tell me why. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, please take a minute to share this episode or rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
To learn more and to apply for the Fund 81 BC Forum, check out fund81.com. That's F-U-N-D-81.com. Until next time.